I've just grown up around a lot of people that have set a good example for me that if you hustle, you can get anything you want in life. And I truly believe that. A lot of people think America is no longer a place where the American dream can be achieved. And I, I say bullshit. Like if you're willing to grind hard enough and sacrifice hard enough and take calculated risks, I don't care what hole in the ground you crawled out of, you can still do it. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jory Calkins, the founder and CEO of Enduring Companies and the host of Built to Outlast, a podcast and community for business builders by business builders. We explore the journeys and companies of business builders in America with a focus on traditional small to mid-sized business niches and the strategies which enable them to endure and flourish. If you are building a business now or aspire to build one in the future, this is for you. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources to support your journey, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is, or if you want to buy or build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. Welcome, everyone. For our show today, we are speaking with Karen Nazif Aldridge, who is a friend and the founder and CEO of Rebel Athletic. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, and I think everyone will be excited to hear about Rebel and, and the impressive operation and enterprise that you've built there. I think folks would love to know a little bit more about you and your background, you know, how you grew up, where you grew up, who was Karen from ages zero to, you know, 10 or 15, and, and how has that informed where you're at now? So I was born uh, to a U.S. military father and uh, a Chinese mother in, in Taiwan, And I was actually raised by my maternal grandmother for the first five years in Taiwan. My parents ended up, my dad ended up getting stationed somewhere else. And I guess they wanted to work and earn money. And so they left me in Taipei, which is probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because my first language is not English. My first language is actually Mandarin. And we'll see later on in our conversation how helpful being an affluent Mandarin speaker has helped me with running my business. So um, at age five, my parents showed up and lured me onto a plane and brought me to Fort Hood, Texas, where my dad was stationed. So my dad ended up being career uh, career military, 27 years in the army. Wow. And uh, shortly after my maternal grandmother and grandfather followed and we lived, I lived in Fort Hood, Texas until I was 13 my mom ended up opening a couple of Chinese restaurants. So I think I got a lot of my entrepreneurial spirit from her and her businesses were wildly successful because at the time, you know, she was the first mover. There was, there was no Asian food restaurants at the time anywhere in Colleen Fort Hood, Texas. And so what eventually brought me to Dallas at age 14 was my mom continued to move North. So she opened a restaurant in Temple, Texas, and then in Waco and then eventually in Dallas. And so right before I started high school, my dad at that point had just retired from the army. And then our whole family moved to Dallas, which was probably another one of the best things that ever happened to me, you know, going from that military town to a much, much bigger city really, you know, opened my eyes. And so after that, I went to high school in Dallas. And then I um, went to college. I started at UT Austin and I'm one of the weirdos. Like I actually didn't like Austin and I was very homesick. So I only stayed at UT Austin for one year. And then I transferred back and finished at U- UTD at UT Dallas. 
And then I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. I really wanted to dance, actually. And I was teaching dance on the side. And I wanted to major in dance. But being from the Chinese side of my family, if you know anything about like first generation Asian immigrants to the US, like that's a big no, no, like any type of like liberal arts, or if you say, Oh, I want to dance, or I want to do theater, they're like, No, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, pick from the three, right? So there was not, you know, there was no option for me to really pursue my true passion, which was dancing. And once I got really good at it, you know, my mom was like, you have to stop doing this and focus on something that's going to pay your bills. So I was a political science major. And then after I graduated with that political science degree, it was like, what am I going to do? You know, how am I going to, how am I going to support myself? So I ended up in law school at SMU. And uh, the interesting thing is, I did well there. I've always been a good test taker, but I just knew this is not for me. I felt like a fish out of water there. I could, I felt like I didn't belong. My study partner, who is now a lawyer and who now represents my company, is one of the lawyers that represents my company. She and I hatched this idea our first year in law school that we were going to start this fashion company. I know it sounds crazy, right? And so I, we, we actually put together this whole business plan and looking back, it was actually pretty impressive for two young people. Like not, neither one of us had any type of fashion background, but we were like, this, this would be so fun and so cool. And so long story short, I dropped out my third year of law school, which is the last year, which people to this day are like, you are so nuts. Like, why didn't you just finish? <laughs> you know, I dropped out to start this fashion company with her. Okay. And uh, what's even more crazy is that the fashion company took off. So it was called Fortune Denim. And we were selling these two to $300 jeans. And it started off, I was selling them out of the back of my car. I'm not kidding. And we would just roll up to these random boutiques. But the product was really good, right? I had gone to LA, we had learned everything we could learn from the University of Google. And we had bought books and we're like, okay, we're smart. We made it into law school. We're smart. So we can figure out how, how to run a fashion business. We can hire, you know, the pattern makers and people we need to make what we want. To make a long story short, we hustled a lot, but we also got lucky because back, this was right before, you know, Facebook blew up. This was pre Instagram, pre Snapchat, pre social media influencer, right? So the way you could get a fashion product to blow up back then was not by connecting with somebody online, YouTube or internet uh, influencer. You had to actually make friends with paparazzi and hang out in West Hollywood and say, hey, if you see my product, send me the photo and I'll send you $500, like that type of thing. And so we got really lucky. And we had, at the time, Eva Longoria spotted in our jeans because we were selling the jeans into all the hit places that all these celebrities shopped. Right. And there were small orders into these little niche boutiques, but nevertheless, we caught her wearing the jeans, Britney Spears in the jeans. We had a lot of big name celebrities in the jeans. And so we did about a million in sales in the first nine months and like really not even knowing what we were doing. Right. And it just kind of caught on and we didn't, we couldn't afford like having our own booth or our own setup space inside of the trade shows. So we would buy out space inside of other people's showrooms, right? And then depend on the walk-by traffic and hire people to hand out flyers. I mean, it was a real hustle, but it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I learned that a lot of people in the fashion industry aren't very nice. Um, and <laughs> We'll have to circle back to that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, we were running this business for, I guess, three years and then the recession hit. 
And you guess what? Even rich people don't buy $300 jeans during a recession. That that's a note, note to self and everybody listening. Overnight, I would say we lost 40 or 50% of our customers. And most of our customers, you know, we weren't in any, we weren't in the Nima Marcuses or the Barneys of the world. We were in 300 plus small boutiques across the US, right? Trendy small boutiques. We, we were on a, in a boutique on Melrose. And the moment that I know, knew the bottom had fell out is I was driving to go meet one of our customers who, who made it, made it through the recession there. It's called House of Petrozelia. Paris Hilton to this day still shops there, right? And I walked in to go see her personally to take her order. And she, the order she placed was so small. I was like, what's going on? And I, I figured, you know, you're immune to it because you're in West Hollywood, right? I know the recession just hit, but you're immune. And she said, Karen, her exact words were, I cannot even get girls like Paris Hilton to spend a thousand dollars in my store right now. She's like, everybody is tightening their purse strings. You know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And so I went home and I talked to my mom, who is a business person, was giving me advice. And she said, you have two choices. You either need to shut this brand down and do something else until the economy recovers and you can get away with selling $300 jeans again, or you need to take the line down market and go take your production offshore to China or somewhere else. Because I was having everything made in LA. It had a made in LA label on it. It had the Swarovski crystal, like a Swarovski tag. You know, it was being sold as a very premium product. And that was the marketing. And I said, I can't, I can't sell these jeans for $80, $90 at under premium because our entire marketing campaign is based on it being this super shishi brand that all of these celebrities wear. And so I decided I was going to shut, we were going to shut it down. We're going to shut down the operation and, t- and then relaunch when the economy recovered. And uh, during that time, we weren't that big of an operation and I had a couple, a handful of employees and I wanted to be able to keep them employed. So we shifted to doing private label. And so what that is, is, you know, we, I worked with everybody from, you know, members only, they made a comeback. Do you remember those when we were kids, like the members only jacket? I was but not cool. Members only I was far from cool. <laughs> you didn't have a members only <laughs> <laughs> So during my time in LA and doing the fortune, doing fortune, the fortune denim brand, I met a lot of people and there are a lot of women's contemporary brands based in LA that are getting their product offshore, but they don't want to deal directly with the factory. They don't trust what they're dealing with over there. They, there's a communication gap. There's a cultural gap. So they would, they hired me. Several of these companies hired me during that interim gap when I shut the company down to basically be their agent because they're like, you know, Karen, you go deal, you go deal with these factories in China. And we'll pay you and then you can get our goods to us because we don't want to deal with them, which I get it. That's still going on, right? Because I I was able to kind of bridge both cultures and there was a comfort level. So I kept that handful of people employed through that period of time by doing private label. And the private label business sucks because it's highly competitive. There's a million people trying to do it and it's very low margin. So you're just like skimming the skin, right? And so... The whole time this is happening, I'm like, okay, I've got to figure something else out because this, you know, this is just barely keeping us afloat. And it's, I didn't, it was no fun, right? Just kind of being somebody's middleman. And so right around that time, I was teaching dance lessons. So I'd gone back into dance and I was teaching dance like almost every night, every weeknight here in Dallas. And the community is very small. The cheer and the dance community in Dallas is really small. We kind of all know each other. And so my friend Keith Green, out of the blue, calls me one day. He's a, he's a, he was a, dance director for many years. He has since retired. And he said, Hey, this guy 
in the chair and dance industry named Billy Smith it invited me to go have lunch with him because he wants me to judge for these events. He's, he's a cheer guy and he does cheer events, but he's trying to get into dance. So he's trying to get me to judge like a dance component of his events. To this day, Jory, I have no idea why I said this. It was fate because I'm introverted and I don't crash parties. I don't do that. That's not who I am. I sit in my house by myself, right? <laughs> I said, Keith, I'm going to come with you. I'm coming with you to that meeting. And to this day, we still, he and I still talk about it. He was like, what were you thinking? And I said, I have no idea. You know, it was some divine intervention. I don't know. And he goes, well, you're not, Keith goes, you're not invited. I was like, whatever. It's just like a casual lunch. I'm going to come with you. So we go to Blue Mesa and meet this guy. And this guy was a critical changing point, right? And he finds out that I'm doing private label and I have contacts with factories in China. And he said, hey, I need thousands of these cheerleading jackets. So, you know, when these kids go to these competitions, if you win or place, you get a trophy. Sometimes it's a trophy. Sometimes it's a ring. Sometimes it's a jacket. Sometimes it's all three. But he was giving out these super cool jackets. And he goes, I need these jackets. Can you quote it for me? And I said, well, I need to see one. He goes, I got one out in my trunk. Like this is all going down to this first meeting that I meet this guy at the restaurant. <laughs> he goes out to his trunk, brings this jacket. He said, can you make this for me? And I said, I think I can. He told me what he had been paying you know, for. And I said, I think I, I can probably do this better. So I kept the jacket. Long story short, I, I quoted him on the jacket. He needed like 2,200 units. And when he received our product, the guy was ecstatic. He was like, this is the best quality jacket I've ever had. Like it had like the tackle tool patches It had, you know, various things going on. And it wasn't, it wasn't very basic. It, it had some moving parts. And uh, this guy starts giving my phone number out to everybody. This guy's like the networking king of the cheerleading universe. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And my phone starts blowing up. So it's other people that own independent event companies like he does that are not controlled by varsity. And at the time, and it still is, it's only about 15, 20% of the total, total market because varsity controls the rest of it. Right. So anybody that wasn't varsity affiliated was going to him and getting my number. Like, Hey, I need to call this Karen girl. I need jackets. I need, I need 5,000 stuffed teddy bears. I'm like, well, there's a factory down the street from my jacket factory that happens to do teddy bears, you know? And so I suddenly I'm like, I get pulled down this chair rabbit hole and I did a little bit of research and I realized this is not where the mon- the big money is at. I realized immediately there was one company basically controlling everything cheer. And they're making these uniforms. And I'll tell you another aha moment. This lady named Vanessa came to pick up her jackets from me. She also ran a small cheer competition in, in San Antonio, ordered five or six hundred jackets. She literally walked in, Jory, to the, my warehouse like this on the phone. She paid what for that uniform? Are you kidding? I just bought her a $300 uniform. I got to buy her another one? Like having this conversation, she gets off the phone. I said, what was that about? What what uniform cost $300? She said, my daughter's an all-star cheer. She said her uniform last year was $300. Now they're getting a new uniform. It's $350. She says, it's just outrageous. And I said, what is all-star cheer? I didn't know. So that's club cheer, right? I had grown up cheering, you know, when I lived in Colleen Fort Hood, but you know, there was a, tr- I wore the traditional poly uniform. I showed up Friday night at the games. There was a pep rally, you know, that type of cheerleading, not this high level stuff that these kids in the clubs are doing. So I said, can I see one of these uniforms? Same thing. She goes, I don't have it on me. She goes, but here's my address. She goes, I'll put it in my mailbox, swing by my house tomorrow and pick it up. So I drive by this lady's house in Plano the next day, get this cheerleading uniform. Of course, it's a varsity uniform, right? Because they're the only player in the game making this. I booked a ticket that night 
to, China, to get, on, get on a plane to go to China with that sample. So wow. I get off the plane and um, like I wasted no time. I'm like, I could look at it right away and be like, wow, the profit margins on this are going to be through the roof, right? If, if they're charging the parents 350 for this, right? So I went factory to factory to factory, the contacts that I knew, I got ran out of every factory, cursed out in Chinese. And Mr. Chen, he's he was the worst. He was like, Karen, there are too many moving parts here. We don't want to touch this. And th- the thing is with China back then and even now, they're this mass, they're set up for mass market products, right? They want you to walk into the factory and be like, I have 50,000 units of this one SKU and I need you to make 50,000 units. That's what they love. They don't want... I need 20 of this cheerleading uniform, 13 that look like this, 50 that they literally laughed at me. They were like, I can't make this. I said, what about this? I literally begged him. I said, well, I was his first fit model too. Like thinking back, it was just complete insanity. Like he was fitting the cheerleading uniforms on me when I finally got him to agree to make the prototype. <laughs> but um, <laughs> he goes, go, if he finally he finally gave in and he said, if you'll bring me all the materials, he said, I'm not going to go source all this stuff. He goes, bring me the crystals, bring me all the materials that I need to make this. I'll try to make the sample. So he did. And I was in China for like three weeks that time. That's the longest run I've ever done there. I usually go for like 10 to 14 days at a time. And Rebel Athletic was born. I know. Well, well, no, it, not, not that simple. So the first prototype, the second prototype, the third prototype, they look like Chinese knockoffs. And I hate to say that because it's such a cliche stereotype. Like they literally look like a knockoff product. And I was like, no, we have to get to a point where we're making this better than them. And I didn't have him copy it because we wanted to copy Varsity. I just wanted to see if he could make it right after, after we got him stabilized to a point where he could make it. Obviously we brought in our own designers and started designing things in a very different aesthetic than what Varsity was doing and what the aesthetic looks like today. We've kind of, we've kind of forced them to navigate it by us over the years. But again, long story short, Mr. Chen is now the head of production at our factory. Like he now works for, for us. So never take no for an answer. You know, somebody shuts a door in your face, figure out a window to crawl back in. You know, I think if I wasn't that persistent, yeah, it, it, we wouldn't have gotten to this point. So. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you for sharing all that. There's so much in that story, and I'm excited to start talking more about Rebel in a little bit. But before we do that, just kind of pull out some of the strings in your background that I I think have made you somewhat unique in your ability to both start the business and build the culture that you've built. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know, not everyone grows up internationally. Not everyone grows up for the first five years with their grandparents. Not everyone grows up in the context where their family is, you know, running restaurants and has kind of the expectations that were put on you, put on you. And then certainly not everyone is willing to say, I want to, for lack of a better description, rebel against those expectations and go build what I want to build. Can you maybe just reflect on those experiences and what in, what those instilled in you uh, or what you just innately felt uh, in those experiences that kind of have driven you to make some of those decisions to go drive to that mailbox or go to that lunch? So my, my mom's side of the family, my grandma and grandpa, they escaped the communist revolution in 1949 in China. That's how they ended up in Taiwan. My grandfather was actually a soldier in Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist army, and they were driven off the mainland onto the island. And so 
they ended up backstory. My grandparents ended up not going back to China again because my grandfather was blacklisted until my grandfather became a nationalized, naturalized U.S. citizen and held a U.S. passport. That's the only time they felt safe going back. And their families were punished severely because they were landowners and they owned general stores, our equivalent today of 7-Elevens, right? My grandma's family owned those types of stores. That's how she met my grandfather during the war. Her, her family had a lot of land and they were housing soldiers by the hundreds on their land, right? Uh, during, wow. during the war. And so they were punished severely, um, and living in, in horrible conditions. And, uh, these are, these are the types of stories that I heard growing up. And so my mom and my uncles, you know, also grew up in Taiwan and, we're always told, hey, this you, this is a temporary situation. We're poor, but this is a temporary situation for us, right? If you do do good in school, we're going to get out of this situation. And my mom has told me it was always instilled in them that regardless of them, you know, being kind of refugees and poor, that it was instilled in them from the time they were very small that this is not who you are. This is your current condition, but you can you can you are not a victim to this condition, and you can take action to get out of this. Right. And they really took it to heart. So my mom and my uncles, you know, were very, they went to like the equivalent of the Harvard's and Yale of Taiwan. And when my mom met my dad and, and initially moved to the States, I asked her once as an adult, I said, why did you leave me for five years in Taipei? Like what was the reasoning behind that? Cause they weren't super young. I think my dad was 28 at the time and my mom was 26. She said, we needed to work. Like when, when I say I get my work ethic from my mom, the, the 14, 17 hour days, like that was just a norm for her, like through her entire, you know, youth and middle age. She was like, we needed to work. And it's, it, if we had you, we couldn't work at the level we did to save the money that we did to open that first restaurant. Right. So even though my dad was in the military, they had all kinds of side hustles still going on to like scrape together every penny to open that first restaurant. And the restaurant, ironically, was my grandfather, my Chinese grandfather's idea. So this entrepreneurial blood, I think, has always run through them. Like the communist revolution shut it down for a bit. But then when they got to the States, like, you know, the, their idea was let's let's do something on our own. Like, let's not let's create something for ourselves. Right. So I actually my mom said that she saved up for 10 years, Jory to wow. be able to come up with the money because nobody is going to give like an immigrant Chinese lady, you know, no bank is going to give her money to, you know, open a business. And I said, how did you manage to do that? And this story, like to this day still resonates with me. She said for 10 years, I wanted to drink a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi so bad. She said, but I didn't, I drank water because I, I wanted to save that 25 or 35 cents every day that you see people out now, like, you know, get the kids complaining about they're broke or I don't have, I don't make enough money, but they're in the Starbucks line every day. Like every time I see that Starbucks line, I think of my mom when she said for 10 years, she sacrificed drinking like any type of beverage that costs money and drank tap water to scrape together that whatever 10,000 or 10,000, I guess this was 1980. That's a lot of money right back then to open that first restaurant. That's a lot of foregone Cokes or Pepsis, right? That's a yeah, lot of so discipline to get there. Th these types of stories really resonated for me. And as a kid, I remember growing up, coming home from school, but I didn't go home because when they first opened that restaurant, it was my grandfather cooking. It was my grandmother, like, you know, cleaning the tables. It was like a family operation until it got bigger and they ended up hiring other people to come in. And so for several years, I remember coming home and my 
in doing my homework, except it was in the back of the kitchen. And I was sitting like this close to a meat grinder, literally like, and it was normal to me. I didn't, I didn't know anything else. Right. So it's like, I'm sitting in this kitchen. I reek of Chinese food and there's, you know, I'm doing my homework and I'm watching Tom and Jerry cartoons <laughs> and in the back <laughs> of the kitchen and they're grinding meat, like, you know, five feet away from my head. So I've just grown around, grown up around a lot of people that have set a good example for me that if you hustle, you can get anything you want in life. And I truly believe that, you know, this is to me, a lot of people think America is no longer a place where the American dream can be achieved. And I, I say bullshit. Like if you're willing to grind hard enough and sacrifice hard enough and, and take calculated risks, I don't care what hole in the ground you crawled out of, you can still do it. Yeah, that's amazing. An incredible and and pretty powerful story. And I don't think it's unique to your point, meaning, uh, you know, I think that's the root of the American, not just the American dream, but like what powers our country and, and makes what we the oppor- potential we have here very unique. But what an incredible effort by your family. And then also, you know, you're to, to give you opportunity and then from you to take advantage and kind of compound on that opportunity. Before we get to Rebel, uh, Rebel, one more uh, question. How So as you're making these decisions, to, you know, to go to law school or to start, you know, Fortune, Denim, can you talk through the, that decision point for you? Because I'm in, if I'm putting myself in your shoes, on one side, I can see the desire to hustle and build and capitalize on the opportunity that your parents worked so hard to provide for you. But then on the flip side, you have this, uh, I don't want to say safety net, but, you know, position that they've worked very hard to give you. And there's kind of a, you know, you can go get the more traditional, you know, job or role. So how how did you think about that kind of risk reward? Or, or I don't even know if that's the right way to, to frame it. But how did you think about that decision point? I think a lot of it is genetic. For me as a person, from the time I was very little, I have a horrible issue with authority. I don't like people telling me what to do. I made really good grades. Yeah. And I made really good (laughs) grades in school. So you'd never believe it, but I was suspended from school twice in in high school with straight A's. Like I didn't fit the profile of the type of person that gets suspended. Right. I had a really big issue with authority and I was self-aware enough to know that. And so a driving force for me is one, I, I needed to prove to my family that, hey, I'm not going to live off of the legacy that you've created with your hard work, which some of the other members of my generation of my family, they do do that, right? I'm going to set out and carve my own path. Like I felt very strongly that I needed to do that to prove that to myself and to my family. Because after the, that first restaurant was open, Jory, we moved into another, we moved into a big house. My mom paid all cash for it. Like the restaurant was a, 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 was a license to have a money tree to grow, right? There was a line out the door, even at 4 PM in the afternoon, it was complete insanity. Like it was not normal by any means. And again, I know it was the first Chinese restaurant in that, that neck of the woods. So, I mean, it was, it did very well. And the one she continued to open, she would pick these tertiary markets, right? In the middle of nowhere for people don't, have a taste for Asian food, but can't get it. And so there's a line out the door, right? Every day. And so our life changed very quickly within six or eight months of the first restaurant opening. We moved into a really nice house with a swimming pool. You know, all of a sudden my mom was driving around in a Cadillac, like things changed. And that's when I was very young. And I was, I'm the oldest of my generation. Like my sister is 10 years younger than I am. So 
my sister had it way better than, than I did, like has never, never seen, never sat next to a meat grinder, you know, in the kitchen or anything like that. But I grew up having everything I wanted. I got a car when I turned 16. I, you know, I got the nice clothes, you know, for my birthday. I got to go on the vacations, but I felt like I need, I felt an inner burning desire to show myself in the world that I could also do that on my own. I didn't need to, you know, depend on someone else's successes to have a good life. And I've always been wired that way, very independently. Like, I remember being very young and thinking, you know, I don't, I almost don't want to mar- find and marry a rich guy because I don't want to be seen as like that girl that's like living off of someone else. You know, I just feel like I'm not wired like other women in terms of my, what I wanted out of life. And I think so part of it is genetic. I think I, I wish I had a better story to tell you on, on how I ended up this way, but I really don't, you know, I don't think I could ask for a much better story than that. So I appreciate you sharing all that. And I think I would be an idiot if I didn't kind of pull the thread of you describing yourself as a rebel, which I think is very accurate. And then uh, taking that and leading into starting and building rebel, which, you know, I I think a lot of people know now, but I'd love to hear how pick that story back up and start from, you know, you rebel number one. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many folks you have now, but there's more than one than, than the first rebel. So I'd, I'd love to jump into that, that story. Tell us about rebel and, and how you started it and how it's evolved over time. Yeah. So started it, you know, when I saw an opportunity and got pulled down that rabbit hole by Billy Smith and then saw an opportunity that, you know, this entire industry is being dominated by one player. And when I found out that a lot of their product at the time, it's, it's changed now, they've moved some stuff offshore, but at the time, especially their club cheer and their more intricate cheerleading forms are made in the U S I was like, wait, there's, there's an opportunity here. Right. And so I got very lucky in that I connected with two or three people that had had long careers at varsity, anywhere from eight to 27 years. They had been there under some, some capacity. And one of the guys I met, Michelle Radon, who still works at rebel. She was one of the first people that came over and she was a sales manager for varsity for many years she introduced me to a guy named Carrie Leak, who has since passed away from cancer. But Carrie had worked for Varsity as a vice president of production for 20, 20 plus years, 26, 27 years. And that connection was integral in that he, I mean, I actually flew him over to China and he stayed with me in China for like two weeks and helped kind of set up the factory, calibrate the machines, you know, teach teach the people over there the ABCs of how to construct a cheerleading garment. We knew out of the gate we were going to make our design aesthetic very different because we did not want to follow the leader. We weren't there to follow Varsity. We were there to carving a path, but we needed him for some some of the more technical things because the way cheerleading uniforms are stitched and constructed is just very different than other garments, right? But he was extremely helpful to help get it, get it set up. And looking back, it's all kind of a blur. I say to people often and their eyes glass over, like they don't get it, but I'm like, I really don't know how I managed to get here. You know, it was just a lot of grinding, 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 grinding. And you just, that's how you do it. Right. I think a lot of people say, Hey, we, I just jumped and we decided to, we, we built the plane or we built the parachute after we jumped. That's kind of how we did it. Every problem that hit us, we're like, it's a problem. 
No, it's an opportunity. We're, it's an opportunity for us to learn and make something better. And that's kind of the culture we've built at Rebel. We have this saying, we make, if we're dealt lemons, we always make lemonade. I don't care how, even during the COVID year, you know, I told everybody, chill out. We're going to be fine. We're going to ride this out. And we did, right? I love that theme and that approach. And especially how I think it ties back to some of your DNA that you've now translated into the culture and the company. Can you provide a few examples of lemons that have been dropped on your desk or your doorstep that you've turned into lemonade? Oh my gosh, so many. <laughs> so, so, so many. Um, so I'll tell you one story. The second or third year we're in business, we we sponsored this team. They're, they're Maryland Twisters, a big team out of Maryland. And they agreed to allow us to sponsor a uniform because we're trying to get as many teams as possible showcasing our uniforms at cheerleading worlds, right? And they're a world's level team. So we did this great design for them. And then they went dark on us and wouldn't return our calls. And they had agreed to it. And we showed up hand carrying the 20 uniforms for the girls. And we sat in the audience jury and watched them come out in a competitor's bastardized copy version of ours. Obviously, the competitor had seen our uniform, or they had seen the prototype because it was a dumbed down version of the exact same design. And I was like, wow, this is a, this is the world where this is, you know, cheerleading is not for the faint of heart. But when that happened, you have to, when you feel something like that happen, like it just, it really did light a, light a fire on all of us. We were so angry, but we were also so pumped up like, okay, this is, this is not okay. Right. And so when we got home, one of our sales reps, who's still, who is now a regional territory director for us, she was one of our earlier sales reps. She said, Karen, where are those 20 uniforms? I said, they're at the office. She goes, why don't, why don't you, at the time we only had 10 or 11 sales reps. She goes, why don't you give one of those to each of us and let us walk into the gyms with that? Cause it was spectacular jewelry. It, it looked like nothing that had been done in cheerleading since, you know, at the time now it's very common, you know, it's a look that's very common, but this was nine years ago and things didn't look that way. And I said, that's a great idea. And the thing is a uniform had so many crystals on it. It was like over 4,000 crystals. I said, I don't think these gyms will be able to afford this. And then we came up with the idea. I had our costume girl run margins on it. I said, what if we, you know, we're normally trying to get 60% or above margins on these couture items. I said, what if we took a 40% margin? That's not a great margin, but I said, it's an acceptable margin. I said, what is, what does the price point look like MSRP if we, if we try to hit a 40% margin? And she came, it got to a price. I presented it to our sales reps and they were like, man, we can sell this like hotcakes for this price. Right. So everybody got a sample. They went into the gyms and guess what? That year, on that style alone, we did over a million dollars. On that freaking one style lemonade. That's a lot of lemonade. And that is a lot. And to this day, there's not been another uniform style in 10 years that's been developed that that a single uniform style has brought in a million, right? Because we have like this whole catalog now of different styles. And it's like some end up being popular, some end up being not so popular. But that one, man, that was the one. And we knew that that was kind of a moment too, that we knew we had shifted the trend in that we had be we were becoming the trailblazer in terms of what the cheerleading look was. And we saw knockoffs everywhere from little mom and pop companies trying to knock off that look to, you know, the bigger companies knocking off, knocking off the look. And I tried to shift my mindset from being mad when I saw our products knocked off to being flattered. Like, wow, we're over here doing something right. We're setting the design trends, you know, and the big players are, you know, 
following us. So that was a huge lemons to lemonade yeah, moment. That's amazing. Can you can you describe because you know this space better than certainly many people, kind of at a very high level, how the cheerleading universe works? Meaning, you know, I think there's different tiers of teams, and and each year those teams, you know, will need and design new uniforms. Uniforms are very customized, and there's you know some highly respected teams, you know, that set trends for other teams, and how and how. I think laying that groundwork will really paint the picture for how this is a pivotal intersection for you all. So there are, there's two types of cheerleading. There's school cheerleading, like high school, middle school, high school, collegiate, and then you have like the recreational youth leagues and their uniforms tend to look a certain way. They're more polyester, more traditional looking. And then you have club cheer, which is growing rapidly in the United States and overseas club, club cheer, which is called all-star cheerleading, com- competitive cheerleading. And they're clubs outside of the school system. And some of these clubs are so big, like the biggest one is cheer athletics, which is one of our first customers. They happen to be based here in Plano, Texas, but they have locations everywhere, right? And with club cheer, the look is more, um, they, they put a lot more into the look, right? Because they're wearing that uniform seven, eight times during the season to compete. And they're competing at local and regional competitions to make it to the national competition and potentially get a bid to go to the world competition, which is at Disney in Orlando every year. So if you're outfitting, you know, you're outfitting those big prestigious teams, the cheerleading in and of itself is its own little bubble, right? People are super passionate about it. And, uh, and people that follow that bubble, they follow those or that are in that bubble. They follow those teams, those high level teams coming out of those programs that eventually get a bid and go to worlds to compete for a world's title. This past year, it was just last month, actually, a few weeks ago, was the last cheer, cheerleading worlds just happened. The season just ended. And this year, more teams won cheerleading worlds wearing a rebel athletic uniform than any other competitor in the marketplace. And that is a big deal for us because we were told and I was told, you will never do that. You will never accomplish that because of who you are up against. And don't tell I mean, that. Was, don't tell that to a rebel. <laughs> yeah. So it was, you know, I think our caption on the post was it all, it seems impossible until it's done. And so we're just, we're really celebrating that because that was a long and hard road to get to being in that position. Right. And not without lemons along the way, but I, I think the approach of turning those lemons into lemonade and selling a bunch of lemonade is the grinding that's allowed you to, to, to get to where you're at. So no, no small feat and impressive. There is one other, um, lemons to lemonade moment that I read about. If, if you're up for talking about it with respect to, I think an acquisition that varsity did of, a, of an event group or something like that. And, and that led to another pretty powerful lemons to lemonade moment. I'd love to, if you're, uh, up for it hear hear a little bit about that one. So in 20. 20- 14 or 15, we partnered with Jam Brands. Jam Brands was an event producer. So they were complementary to our business in that we did cheerleading uniforms and they did events. And we had a partnership with them to where they would allow us inside of their events. They were not owned by Varsity at the time. And they were the largest independent event producer in the space. And so we were really almost using Jam Brands as a crutch to and, and not really having to think outside of the box because they just rolled out the red carpet. They wanted to see us succeed as much as they themselves wanted to succeed because same thing with our alignment, right? We're all trying to take out the same monster, right? 
So varsity was their monster. Varsity was our monster. We're all pushing up against the same thing. So they wanted us to succeed and get bigger. So they rolled out the red carpet and let us into all their events to talk to their coaches, do design sessions, pick up new customers, do fashion. They, they're ha- and during their, uh, before their award ceremony, they would let us on stage and we would run a fashion show and show off our uniforms and get on the mic. I mean, we were doing this every weekend, city to city, and then no warning at all. And this was probably a legal thing. Like they weren't allowed to say anything about it until it happened, but I didn't even get a courtesy call before I got blindsided with the news, like with everybody else in the industry that they'd sold varsity. And, uh, I will tell you, Jory, looking back on that, I thought I was going to lose my business. I did because I had this flawed belief that we had to, that that was the only way we could get in front of our customers, you know, in mass. And I mean, we still had sales reps, but even our sales reps, you know, they were, they were getting in the car and driving to jam brands events to meet customers, right? That was kind of the meetup point was a jam brands events for everybody, for our reps, for our designers. And, um, we went and sat at this little restaurant. At that time, my executive team was only me and three other people. And we were like, what are we going to do? And my husband, who who's a marketing guy, he's a marketing consultant. At the time, I think he was working in-house at Charles Schwab, but he was with his friend from Eat Big Fish, which is another, you know, Mark. I should know his last name, but my husband happened to be with Mark when all this shit went down, right? And I call him and he's in the car with Mark, who's also a marketing genius. And I'm telling him what happened because I'm not going to take credit for this because this was their idea. And, and Mark goes, why don't you have, her, why didn't you tell me, tell your wife to pull a Kenneth Cole. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> so to make a long story short, Kenneth Cole, did you know his company is called Kenneth Cole Productions? And I there's a no reason. Idea. And to this day, it is still incorporated as Kenneth Cole Productions. It's not a production company. They make, you know, they make shoes and clothes, right? They're a fashion company. Back in the day when he started Kenneth Cole, he didn't have the money to do the trade shows, the man, the trade shows that roll through Manhattan, the fashion trade shows to get a booth. It's very expensive. And so he thought creatively and found out, Hey, the only way I can park out on the street where all these buyers are going to be right outside the trade show is there were two options, right? You have to be like emergency, emergency vehicle, like EMS, a fire truck, et cetera, which he was not, or you had to have a film permit to be filming something. <laughs> and then if you got the film permit, they would let you park whatever out on the street, a trailer, you know, open. You know. So he reincorporated his company as Kenneth Cole Productions and he got a freaking film permit in Manhattan. Wow. And he, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still old fashioned like, hustle. Budget, right. Yeah. And, and he pulled that trailer up with all those beautiful shoes in it right in front of the big trade show event that he couldn't afford to get inside. And they couldn't tell him to move because he had a permit and he opened up the back of it and people got on and people bought his shoes, right? The buyers, all the major buyers were there from all over the U S and that's how he did it. And so when Mark said that we were like, well, what do you mean? He was like, find, he goes, shoot a documentary, hire somebody to shoot something. And, and he, he said, set up outside of one varsity's biggest event. He goes, you don't need, he was like, you don't need jam brands. Jam brands events are small in terms of the turnout versus the people inside the varsity events are 10 times as big, like varsity's big event in Dallas, right? It's 10 times as big. And that's exactly what we did. And guess what? It worked. We launched a. <laughs> We launched a retail line because of that Jam Brands merger. And 
Retail is now our fastest growing division of the company. And I would have never thought to get into the retail space had that situation not happened, right? Because we knew if we're going to be parked outside of all these varsity events, we needed something. We didn't just want to be doing design sessions and meeting with coaches. We we wanted something to sell to the kids, to get the kids to think we were cool, right? And so now these dream boutiques that we build out, it's just insane. The, la- the last two or three we did, we run five or six registers for two days straight, between two and two and a half days straight, and we do over 300000 in sales. Wow. In, in less than three days, right? And every time we close shop on one of those, you know, my, my head of retail will come to me and say, man, if we just had one more register, a little bit more space, you know, we could have done 380. We could have done four. I mean, it's just a line out the door the whole time. I remember the first year we did it, we did like 40,000 and 30, 40,000. We were so excited. We're like, whoa, people want our retail products. This is (laughs) awesome, you know? And now it's just become this thing that they they have this attitude. Like if we're not making money, if we're not, you know, doing at least a quarter of a million in two days, we're not setting it up, you know? And I'm like, love your attitude. Love that you guys have this attitude. But I mean... It's just been amazing and surreal to watch it grow and watch all the kids come by that love the brand. And uh, I'm excited. What an amazing lemon. What what an amazing lemon to lemonade story. And also just hustle and, you know, seeing something that could work and taking it and running with it and, and making it happen. I also love the thread of a quasi production company concept that kind of dovetails with, you know, another uh, kind of fortuitous event that has helped kind of continue build the the Rebel brand with respect to to Netflix and the Cheer series there, which I yeah. had no idea it was that big a deal. But I, my wife, uh, in in my, one of my desperate attempts to convince my wife that I'm cool, I watched it with her, <laughs> and it was re- you, like you I got season- really into it. Did you watch season one or two or both? Oh, uh, both. Both you for watched sure. Both. Okay. Um, yeah. But I watched season it's, one and got really into it. How it show like you don't. It shows cheerleading for what it really is. I mean, they really are athletes. It, it is. It you know, people still have this preconceived notion that cheerleading is a bunch of people with pom poms, you know, on the sideline. And I feel like the show really did a service to all star and competitive cheerleading and showing how you know how much grit and how much athleticism goes into it. But. That partnership, man, sometimes the stars just align in your favor, right? Because you want to hear something really, really crazy. Monica Aldama, so she coached the coach of Navarro, right? That stars in the show, totally random. Her daughter was the cover model for our very first lookbook that my company ever put out. No way. And how? That happened. I mean, she was one of many moms that showed up with her daughter at the time. And I think Allie is, was at the time, maybe 13 and she's getting married like in a few months. So she's grown, graduated. But at the time, you know, she was a baby and she showed up along with a bunch of other models. Cause that was now we have a casting call, you know, and thousands of kids apply and, and we, we pick from that. But back then nobody knew who we were. So I had to go out and ask people like, Hey, you know, I need to find some kids that are cheerleaders between these ages to model our looks for our lookbook. And Monica was one of the ones that showed up with Allie and Allie did such a good job. We put her on the cover of the book, never knowing seven, eight years later, you know, that this whole Navarro cheer show phenomenon was going to happen. And so I met Monica very early in the, in the life, in the rebel story. Right. 
And so she, she again is a trailblazer because she was a, she is also an unknown fact. Navarro was the very first collegiate team in America to wear an all-star looking crystal uniform competing at Daytona nationals. So she brought that. When they compete, they're doing serious tumbling. They're not dancing around with pom-poms. They're doing some incredible stuff. But that partnership, I mean, we'd been working with Navarro before, you know, the whole world knew who they were. And you, sometimes the stars align in your favor, right? Cause they could have very well been wearing a competitor or working with a competitor, but they, they weren't. And so we consider ourselves very, very lucky that they were aligned with us from the beginning. And, uh, the, the whole team there was, they were, they were great to work with the, the people that produced the show and they were really great. And how did you connect with them? And if you're comfortable sharing how, cause if I recall correctly, this is a little bit of a story of you just treating people right and karma, you know, karma coming back. And, and I kind of love that story and, and have had this concept in a few other conversations I've had on this show where, you know, people just want to treat other people right. And sometimes that comes back sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Sometimes it's just if you be nice to people. Right. So here's how it went down. Gabby Butler, who ha- is, you know, the most famous cheerleader in the world. She's in the show, you know, or she was repping our brand. Before Navarro, she was repping our brand when she was just turned 16 years old, right? And we knew, hey, this girl's a star. This girl's one of the best cheerleaders, if not the best in competitive cheer. And so we scooped her up. We had a conversation with her dad at the time. You know, she was a minor. She's grown now. And he said, hey, I like what you guys are doing. I like that you're going against the machine. You know, same thing. Her dad has that type of mentality. You know, I want her to align with you guys. I don't, you know, I don't want her to align with some of the other cheer brands and he just, he liked what we stood for. So she started modeling for us and we started flying her in and doing certain things. When we started shooting our couture book every year in Paris or in overseas, the first shoot was in Paris. She came with us for that. And then we went to London. She came with us for that. She's gone on every couture shoot. And I didn't know that Gabby had gone to Navarro and I get a call from her dad one day while they were shooting season one. Right. And John says, Karen, because Gab, we were about to shoot a, a shoe commercial with Gabby. And he said, Karen, uh, I talked to Greg, Greg, who is the executive producer of Cheer. He wants to know, it was very last minute. It was like two days before we we're going to shoot the commercial with Gabby, the shoe commercial. He said, Greg wants to know if he and his crew, he said, they're filming something for Netflix. That's all he said. They're filming something for Netflix. Can he and his crew come out to the chew commercial shoot and get some like behind the scenes and B-roll and stuff? And I was like, okay, whatever, you know, okay, that's fine. I I think sometimes I'm too like, but it helps, you know, I'm like, okay, then come whatever. I heard Netflix and I'm like, okay, it's obviously legit. It's not some random, you know, random people from, from the side street. It's Netflix. So they show up. I didn't think anything of it. Of course, it's the one day I have no makeup on, a beanie, right? Because you see me in the show <laughs> looking really bad. And I just assumed they were going to come interview Gabby and get some behind the scenes of her tumbling and in this commercial. And I show up, I pull up, I show up. It's like freezing. It's like 20 degrees Fahrenheit outside, freezing. I pull up to the set and they walk and the crew walks up and they're like, hi, um, will you sign this waiver, please? And we're miking you. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, well, we want to interview you about Rebel Athletic and, and Gabby and how she's involved with brand or whatever. Cause we're shooting this cheer show that you know, centers around, you know, her and these other athletes at this at Navarro. And I was like, at that point, I realized I was like, okay, 
I let him mic me and I let him mic all my people. And I said, okay. And that's kind of the risk you take, right? Not really knowing what's happening or what it's about. And it, it was a good risk to take because we ended up being part of that first season and huge product placement throughout it. People think, people think we paid to product place in the show because our products are so much through the show everywhere. And we didn't. Right. And so I got a call from Greg that next week and he said, Hey, we're going to be in Dallas. Can I come interview you and some of your people and get and shoot your office? Like come to the rebel athletic office. And I said, yeah, why not? And from that point on, you know, I would get calls here or there, Karen, we need 20 pairs of shoes. Can you help us out? Absolutely. Tell me where to send them to, you know, season. So we made friends with, with, um, Greg and, and his crew that was, was shooting. And we were, just, you know, when you're nice, it goes a long way. When you give access, right? I said, whatever you need, we're here. For season two, he had this idea. He, he calls me. I'm eating cereal at my counter. And he said, we're going to, and this was like a week out, right? He goes, I just had this dream. I had this Mad Max vision. I want them in these all white uniforms on the beach at Daytona. And I said, Daytona is in a week. He goes, can you do it? Can you do it? Right? Because Hollywood people don't understand the difficulty. <laughs> yeah, they just, you know, think you, you're just going to wake up and manifest uniforms in 24 it just hours. Happens. He said, can you do it? And I, I said, okay. I said, I'm going to try it. We, we did it. We did it. We did it by the skin of our teeth. We drop shipped those uniforms to his hotel room at Daytona. And wow. you see them in the opening credits. So every opening, you know, the beginning scene, if you remember all of season two, those opening credits there and the, all those white uniforms, like, I don't know how that happened because from the time he called me and said, I need these white uniforms to the time we delivered them was literally less, less than a week. But, um, you know, just stuff Which like, is amazing stuff like turnaround. that. And, that's a huge, that's like yeah. a Herculean effort to get, because those are all I customized. Know, but, those are all, mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. But, um, he was like, well, let me know if there's something, you know, we can do for you. And I said, oh, you, you know, exactly what you can do for me. So, I mean, I don't know if you noticed in some of season two, like those close up shots, like, uh, like at our dream boutique, at, at our dream boutique where there's a limo and there's like the slow pan over our logo. And if you look for it, it's all there. It's super cool. Some of the That's stuff amazing. that they did for us. But, yeah. But I love how it's all the stuff you did, you did without expectation, right? It was you helping someone out and being a good. I do believe that things come back to you. You know, if you just be a good human and and try to help other people, you know, wherever you, you can, I don't ever do anything expecting something back. I often hope that something good, good will come out of it, but there's never that expectation of, Oh, I want this or that from, you know, that person. So. I had two more things I wanted to touch on before we wrap up here. One was just kind of following through on that concept of doing good and helping in some of the kind of causes that you and and the company has got involved in involved in around bullying and things like that. I'd love to hear about that because I think that's a a pretty powerful one and aligns in my mind really well with what you've built. But I'd love to hear maybe about that a little bit and then, you know, what's what's in the future, uh where are you building to and towards and and kind of what's the next leg of the journey entail? Yeah. Sometimes I wonder. Um, so <laughs> there's only one Rebel way to find against, out. You just gotta <laughs> rebel against bullying. That is our that is our company platform, and I think it's so. Pro- I, I I experienced bullying as a kid. Obviously, you you can read between the lines. Coming from Taiwan at age five and not speaking a word of English, I couldn't communicate with my father. I mean, it was dreadful. It took me a good nine ten months to learn English. There was like a tutor coming to the house at night, but my dad 
my dad did not want me in ESL classes in English second language. And I don't know why, because I probably would have definitely benefited from that. He somehow convinced the school to put me straight into regular class. Jory, I literally learning, sat learning there. I did, fire. Wow. I did not know what was going on. All these kids were laughing at me. And my mom didn't have the foresight and there was no malice behind it. But I mean, they sent me to school. I, I still have pictures. Like I showed my husband and he just laughed and laughed. They sent me to school in like traditional Chinese clothes, like the Chinese frog button jackets and a little like beanie hat. I mean, just they set me up to get, you know, brutalized <laughs> by these kids. And, you know, I have some really crazy memories of just, you know, getting bullied. And you know how kids are, you know, if you're different at all in any way, they're going to target you. And so, you know, I did experience severe bullying, especially when I first came over. And so I felt like being a company that caters to predominantly girls and predominantly teen and tween girls, bullying is is an epidemic. I don't know if you know or not, bullying is an epidemic in the United States among girls of the age group that we service, right? And I don't know why it is much worse amongst girls than it is amongst amongst boys. And so we just felt like it made sense to have our platform be anti-bullying. It really resonated with a lot of our early employees. And it seemed like half the people in the company, when I said, hey, do you think this is a good platform for, for us to have? People raised their hands and said, would say, I have a personal story. I have a personal story. You know, I think a lot of people have been through stuff like this when they're a kid and they don't they don't know what to do or how to get help or how to stand up for themselves. So um, I'm really proud of our Rebel Against Bullying platform and the efforts that we do. We do this thing called Practice Crashers, where our spokesperson, Michaela Nichols, will go into schools or gyms and crash the practices. And they'll hand out goodie bags and they'll do a little, you know, 20-minute talk about, you know, how how to stand up for your friend if they're getting bullied, what to do if you're getting bullied, just talking to kids and trying to remove the stigma around, hey, it's okay to tell somebody you're struggling or going through something, you know? Obviously a great and important cause that's it's aligned with, you know, the audience you're targeting and the brand that you've built. But I think also a really powerful, you know, you've you've personally and professionally made lemonade out of those lemons. You've used some of those experiences to build up muscles and not physical muscles, but emotional muscles that that allows you to do that. But in some situations, it's really hard, I would imagine, for for people that are struggling with that. And so to know that there is a group out there that they look up to or a company out there that they look up to that is supporting them and saying, you know, it's okay and you can turn this around or, you know, you can use this to your advantage and, and empower yourself more. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I think it's a... Um, a very powerful cause that that you've chosen. One of the things I'm most proud of, of the culture that has been built at Rebel is that we allow people to just be themselves. As long as you're not offending somebody else, we don't have a dress code. You know, we, we, we give people a flex schedule. We know you've got kids to drop off at school. So if you need to come in at 1030, come in at 1030. We don't, we trust people. If you show people that you trust them and you respect them and you respect that they have a life outside of work and a family outside of work, they will give you more. Right. And so I, from my own experiences, whether it's, you know, I used to be an intern at a law firm. I've, I've held other jobs. I've had other jobs before, you know, my life doing this. And in a lot of those environments, I felt really oppressed because you had to conform to a certain stereotype. And I feel like I've set up a company to where I allow people to just be themselves. Literally, I say, as long as you are not offending somebody else at the office, 
be you. Do you. It's okay. It's a judgment-free zone, right? Come and do your work and be you. So it's progressive in that way. And that's something that I'm really proud of that I can create an environment where people don't feel like they have to conform. You've created a uh, a pretty powerful culture that's aligned with kind of what you're building in the space. What's next for the band of rebels? The band of rebels. Um, I don't know. That's well, probably not the best uh, phrasing, but what, what are you all no, up to No, I next? love that. What's I actually refer hold? to us as a band of rebels. At one point, I referred to us as the band of misfits. So... Um, <laughs> No, I, I, we want to continue to grow. We want to continue to grow the market share and cheer. We're also expanding out into dance. I'm very excited about that. And, you know, I want to be a little lady in my rocking chair someday, knowing that, you know, we took out the machine, you know, that may take another five years. It may take another 25 years, but that is the goal. And it is a lofty, lofty goal. But we're here for it, and and we're we're ready to continue to grind and and get to that point. So, um, well, we've done an impressive job. Uh, the, the key so is far. good people. Key is good people, and a mission worth charging after. And I think you've done a done a good job of both. Before we uh, wrap up, I ask the same kind of two part question of everyone that comes on the show. It's kind of like a take a penny, leave a penny at the gas station, but it's meant to uh, both kind of leave a tidbit for our community and then also hopefully have our community be helpful to you. So the first question is, what is something? It could be a, you know, a business insight or a trick. It could be a book. It could be a habit. You know, anything. That, what is something that has been helpful to you as you've built your you know, life and business that uh, you think might be helpful to you know, the community of other people trying to, to follow in those footsteps? I practice the law of attraction. And a lot of people think it's very hokey, but it's actually a very real thing. I encourage everyone to read the book, The Secret. When I'm having a really bad day, I keep it next to my bed. I will just open it up to a random page and read a few pages of it. It is extremely powerful. If you can align with the vibration of the universe, you can have anything you want. And again, it sounds all out here crazy, but it actually works. Can you just describe what that is a little bit more? Your thoughts become things, right? You can manifest things, but you have to believe you're already there before you're there. That's the only way I can explain it. But the the secret and the law of attraction, I mean, you can just go, go online. Any of your listeners can Google law of attraction and so many different things will come up. But it like, I got my husband reading it and he said, Karen, you know, he was very skeptical. And and I said, did you read that book? And he said, Karen, my whole body tingled when I read it. Wow. Okay. So also can of thinking, this is another thing my husband taught me. And he, he preaches this to, you know, our entire team every year. He does, it does a workshop um, with new people can of thinking. It's a way to reframe your thinking. We often as humans, we say, I can't do that because, well, like we can't do that because, right? That's not allowed at Rebel. We don't say we can't do that because. You say, I can do that if that thing you think you can't do, reframe the question and let's talk about it then. I can do that if these factors, are, you know, happen, right? So those are two things that I would share. I appreciate that. And, and so to, to reverse it, what is... You know, if our listeners, our community and platform had a magic wand and, you know, we could wave it and help you, 
with one thing, what would that be? And, you know, it could be helping support a new product line or going and visiting or getting involved in, in the uh, rebel against bullying. What, you know, what's something that we can help you with? Right now, at the top of my mind in this current economy, it is so difficult to hire good talent and retain good talent. We need people. We can only grow as fast as we can hire good people to scale and support that growth. And the last couple of years has been really hard because I actually wanted to hire more than 20 sales reps. And we couldn't, we couldn't even start the year. We had 15 and, you know, and even working with HR and outside firms to try to bring people to the table, it's just very slim pickings right now. And I would love to come across some superstar resumes. And uh, the way I, I always think about it is even if there's not a position open for somebody, if I come across somebody and they're, I'm like, you're a superstar, I'm going to create a position for you. I'm going to hire you and bring you onto the team because you are going to affect change, regardless if there's a job listing for you or not. Those are the type of people I'm looking for. So I'm, I'm going to man, I'm going to speak that out and manifest it into the universe to you. Hopefully some of your listeners will send somebody to yes. us. <laughs> uh, for, for those listening who want to join a band of rebels with Karen and keep putting a big dent in a big space uh, in a fun way, please reach out to us and, and we'll make sure we can get you in touch with Karen. Well, thanks very much, Karen, for taking the time. Looking forward to continuing the conversation and appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks everyone for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources, please visit builttoutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is or want to build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. 